Great. Well, good evening. Good to be up here. Um, now, uh, have you, if you've got them with you, have your Bibles open, because we are going to study Luke 18, 1 to 8 today. Um, now, this is one of those, a little bit like Nigel's uh, parable this morning, where you think, actually, it's pretty self-explanatory. I mean, Luke even says right at the start, then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. What else is there to know about this? That's quite great. I sort of read that and thought, oh, this would be a quick one. I'm sure you're thinking, great, we're in for a short sermon. We can get home in time for... Actually, what's on tonight? I don't know. It's not Endeavour, is it? That's finished. Whatever is on tonight. Great, we'll get home. Um, well, I'm afraid not. We've got some unpacking to do. Um, because just with any, as with any other part of Scripture, you can read it on face value and get something from it. Sometimes that's harder if you're going through numbers or the genealogy of uh, Matthew. But if we dig carefully and we dig deeper, then there will be some jewels to discover. And as always, if it's any part of the Bible, the biggest jewel to find in there is going to be Christ himself. So, we've got about an hour, so I'll stick to, I'll stick to an hour. Okay, um, I've got enough material. So what I'd like to, look, what I'd like to do as we, as we look through this together, three areas that we'll, we'll look at. So the first is to look at this and say, okay, what, what does this tell us about God? And therefore how it points to Jesus. And then, what does it tell us about us in light of what it tells us about God? And then what should we do as a result? So we'll go through those three things together. Before we do that, a little bit of context, because uh, it's very easy to start to read passages out of, out of context and, and lose their sense of where they're anchored. Um, now, this, this parable occurs... Essentially, I mean, there's a whole body of parables here in Luke, and quite a few are exclusive to Luke as well. And, and this sort of occurs in that transition between the gradual shift between parables of grace towards parables of judgment. And this falls in that transition period. And for Luke, what was much more important to him were the topical connections between the parables rather than a sense of chronology, you know, things, things uh, being ordered the way that Jesus said them, uh, or even the geography, you know, where these, uh, where these parables were shared and what, where Jesus was at the time that, that uh, he shared them. So the topical connections are the really important links between these. And what we find is that at the heart of these parables, it's Jesus preaching about the nature of his kingdom. And so if we look at 18 verses 1 to 8, really important that we see what comes before and then what follows after as well to, to give it a sense of orientation. Now at the end of Luke 17, you're, you might, may see in your Bible that uh, verse 20 is given the subheading, the coming of the kingdom of God. And that's what Jesus talks about. And then a little bit later in chapter 18, we get to verse 18 where it's the rich ruler. And he asked Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So there is this real sense here that these parables and these themes and, and what Jesus is covering is looking towards the end times, but with a very sharp focus on what it means in the here and now. So it's big picture, but it's also the immediate detail of the here and now. The other really key thing I think here is, is to note that the passages before and after the passage we're looking at now, the hearers, it says, were the Pharisees. But Jesus' audience for this particular parable were, was his disciples. So, what does that mean? I mean, the disciples, essentially, when you think about they were a ragtag bunch and they weren't necessarily skilled or uh, inclined enough to be part of this sort of religious system. So they were tradesmen, they were, you know, they were out there, even a tax collector. So they sort of sat outside this religious system. And, and we see that these parables, if you like, the audience, the hearers of what Jesus is sharing, 
flip between the Pharisees, the religious elite, you know, the exclusive ones, and then the disciples who were, in, in society's eyes at that time, far from being an exclusive bunch. And really important to remember that the worldview of many of the first century Jews, especially the Pharisees around this time, their focus was on this idea that the nation's ultimate return from exile was still to happen, that the, the promises of a faithful God were still to be fulfilled in, in their entirety, and that they were waiting for this, essentially, renewal of creation under the, the rule and, and sovereignty of a Messiah, whatever the Messiah was going to look like, and that the whole world would follow suit. So the Pharisees, who we tend to think about, sometimes unfairly, we tend to sort of class them as this legalistic bunch who think only about grace by works. Actually, they had quite a noble intention, and that was to remain faithful by following the the, the Torah and being ritually pure. Because they thought that when, when when God returns and fulfills his promises with the Messiah... How will he know who the faithful are? Well, it's those who have been following the Torah and have been uh, following it faithfully. But what tends to happen is that there's a blindness caused by this because what comes with this sense of ritualistic purity is very much a pigeonholing of what God will do when he acts, when he fulfills these prophecies. It must look like this. And we must be ready. But by doing so, they tend to fully miss the presence of the Messiah in their midst. So their eyesight is out there, they're looking for the kingdom to come, but they're missing the presence of the king right in front of them. So what Jesus is doing here, he's showing his disciples what the kingdom really looks like. And as I said, these disciples weren't the religious elite, but he gives them access to the the deepest truths about who he is, who the king is, and what his kingdom looks like. So there's this idea here, straight away, before we even really get into this, that Jesus subverts everything. And and alongside this, we see Luke, and he's he's obviously got to weave this whole idea of the Jewish nation and what their expectation is. And into this, he's got to weave the sense that actually the Gentiles are being enveloped and and wrapped and, and folded in, almost like a dough, into God's chosen people. That suddenly, this idea that God's grace is going beyond the boundaries of what is ritually pure, and it's going out there to these idolatrous pagans that are outside this nation. And of course we see this much more so in Acts, which is essentially the second volume to Luke's Gospel, because he wrote it as one one bunch of scrolls. And we we see them divided as Luke and Acts, but they're written together. And so when you see the, the traces of the early church, it's very much about this idea that actually God's promises are for Gentiles as much as as much as the Jews. So we see this real subversion here, and that's really important to keep keep that in mind. So what does this tell us about God? Well, we see that there's a, it's called, sometimes it's called the parable of the persistent widow, sometimes it's the unjust judge. And the role of a judge was, naturally, to be a jurist, a practitioner of the law, an agent of grace, if you like. But Jesus presents him here as someone who breaks all of the rules of his, his profession. And eventually the Judge relents, but not on the merit of the case of the widow. He just relents because of his own convenience. I mean, it says that he you know, has no respect for God and he has, has no need for the respect of other people. And he's actually willing to be perceived as a bad judge, essentially for a little bit of uh, peace of mind. So he's entirely self-dependent and he's entirely self-serving. So where do we see God in this story? Because that doesn't sound much like the God that we know. Well, 
Jesus often, frequently, adopts this idea of an anti-hero in his parables. So think about the Good Samaritan as well. And when he adopts the anti-hero, it's actually in a way to portray his father. But this was a judge without justice. So what we see here, and what we see in other parables as well, is a, is a common pattern. And it's an, an argument that basically goes from the lesser to the greater. So it means that if a worldly wicked judge does these things, how much more a just and holy and loving judge? So there's how much more. We go from lesser to greater. So in other words... Jesus uses bad people to illustrate the goodness of God. So God is the antithesis of this judge. And what that means is that he uses his mightiest power on behalf of the weakest people. Let's go back to Deuteronomy 10 where he says this about himself. For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow, and loves the foreigner residing, residing among you, giving them food and clothing. So like the judge, he's entirely self-dependent, but very much unlike the judge, he's entirely self-giving. So what does this tell us about us in light of what this tells us about God as the judge? Well, of course, a widow, essentially, is someone who's not just lost her husband, by doing so, particularly in the, the era in which this was written, and this was, this was heard by the, the listeners of Jesus and, and those who shared these Gospels, a widow is essentially someone who'd lost the status in life. You know, she had, might as well have lost her life because she's so far down, so far down the ranking that it's a, a great loss of more than just a, a spouse. And uh, Nicholas Wolstersdorf, it's a great name that, he observes something through Scripture that he calls the Quartet of the Vulnerable, so the groups of people throughout the Bible who tend to be the weak, the ones who are easily harmed, those who are oppressed, four, four types of people. We've got the poor, we've got the orphans, we've got the immigrants, sometimes referred to as aliens, and of course we've got the widow. But actually the, the Bible upholds, as with all of these four, upholds widows particularly. So for example... Moses commanded the people of Yahweh in uh, Deuteronomy 27 when he was given the, the Ten Commandments. He said, Cursed is anyone who withholds justice from the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow. If we fast forward to, back to Luke, Luke 2, there's Anna the prophet in the temple. She was very old. She had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage and then was a widow until she was 84. She never left the temple but worshipped night and day, fasting and praying. And then, of course, she identifies with Mary and Joseph, this baby, and identifies him as the one who will redeem Jerusalem and gives thanks to God. I mean, what a gift for that widow to be so discerning and to have such a prophetic vision. And then later further, Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 5 to give proper recognition to those widows who are really in need. The widow who is really in need and left all alone puts her hope in God and continues night and day to pray and to ask God for help. So there's real consistency here in both God's view for, for the widows and also how the widows essentially are faithful to God. And we see this pattern again and again. So it's not new to this, this parable. But there's a challenge in this. And I think the challenge is that we are in this story. So we can easily identify God in this story. But there's a widow. And we might say, well, I'm not a widow. I mean, are you saying I'm a loser, a social loser? I'm happily married. Maybe I'm financially okay. Maybe I'm even classed as successful. 
But we have to remember that the parables, essentially, that what they depict is something in the natural realm that represents and transpires something in the spiritual realm. So that means that we need to place ourselves as the object of the parable. So we may well be the son who returns home to a loving father. We may well be a widow who cries out for justice. What we need to do, though, is understand what do we mean by justice in this sense. And God says in uh, verse 8, sorry, Jesus says in verse 8, I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. So what's this justice like that God will bring quickly? Well, I think it could be, I would suggest it's one of three things. So firstly, it's either that God brings this sense of justice daily through the actions of his followers. So, for example, God, command, sorry, God commands Moses in Exodus 22, do not take advantage of the widow or the fatherless. If you do and they cry out to me, I will certainly hear their cry. My anger will be aroused. In Acts 6, you might remember that there was a matter of dispute between the growing number of disciples and, and we had the, the, the Hebrews and the Greeks basically concerned because some of the widows were being overlooked in the distribution of food, which is then what happens where they, they, the, the apostles then decide to put together the deacons as, as table waiters to, to look after these widows. And then James in chapter 1, verse 27, tells his readers that religion our God, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after the orphans and the widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. So that's, that's the, the first way that this justice may come about. It's through the actions of Jesus' followers. But there's a second one here as well, and maybe this is one that more readily springs to mind. Maybe he brings this justice about eschatologically, so it's quite a long word, but what that means is in the end times, right at the end, you know, in the culmination of, of time, at the second coming. So this sense that there will be an ultimate judgment and a vindication against our and God's enemies and persecutors, the sense that all things will be well and put right. Well, I think there's certainly both of those things are true and that justice will and does happen in that way. But I think actually fundamentally there's a third, deeper justice that God brings. Now, this parable occurs while Jesus is on his route to Jerusalem. So he follows this. If we, if we were to take this, the, the Luke structure literally, the, the route that Jesus takes is not a particularly direct one. But certainly what comes out is it may not necessarily be geographically the quickest route, but there's a real sense that Jesus has this steely resolve to reach his destination, which is the cross in Jerusalem. And Perhaps that is why he refers to this justice as coming quickly, because he knew exactly where he was headed. And obviously at the cross, that is where he achieved justice for each and every one of his people. Well, how does that bring justice about? Well, in Hebrew, there is the word mishpat, which is commonly used through here for, to represent the word justice, and it means to give people their due so the positive side of that is, well, that's great, because you give people their due, it means that you uphold the rights of those who are poor and needy, those who have few resources. But of course there's a downside to this justice as well, there's a negative aspect to that, which is that words that we think about that relate to things like prevention or elimination, even punishment and condemnation, all of those things are really crucial to this idea of justice being upheld. Now, this God of justice demands that you love your neighbours as yourself, or you're punished. The Sermon on the Mount, Jesus doesn't just say, 
don't kill your neighbour, you can imagine if Jesus was there saying, okay, everyone put your hands up, hand down if you've killed a neighbour, or you're often very tempted and come quite close. I'm sure a lot of the hands would stay up. But then he goes a little bit further and he says, well, don't be angry to your neighbours either. Okay, so maybe a few other hands go down, because people are starting to think, well, I might get a bit angry with my neighbours sometimes, occasionally. And then Jesus takes it a step further. And he says, don't ignore, or essentially, don't show disdain to them. I can't imagine there would be many hands still raised up after that. And certainly if I was there, my hand wouldn't be raised because I fail at this. Okay, I may not go around killing my neighbour, but certainly I get angry, and certainly I ignore or show disdain to others. So if we're to punish perpetrators and lift up the oppressed to fulfil and uphold justice, the problem is that I am a perpetrator. According to Jesus' standards, I'm not innocent, and I actually contribute to injustice. So I deserve to be judged and condemned. We all do. And that is why we're like this widow, because ours is a helpless condition. So how can we worship a God of justice when we know that his justice means that we ourselves should be punished? We're in a bit of a dilemma here. In Luke 4, you might remember that Jesus is in the temple and he references Isaiah 61. And he causes all sorts of turmoil turmoil because he stands up and he claims something very very unique and special and to a lot of the listeners it was blasphemy he says this quoting Isaiah 61 the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor he has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor now that is where his quoting of Isaiah actually finishes If you go back to Isaiah 61, it doesn't finish there, it carries on. What Jesus has deliberately admitted is another line there, which actually followed on, and the day of vengeance of our God. So it should have read, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour, and the day of vengeance of our God. So what Jesus is doing, he's sort of recalling all the good stuff, but he's omitting the bad stuff. So he's bringing about the the more palatable side of justice, if you like, but actually not leaving us with a sense of of dread and fear that we ourselves would be judged accordingly. Why does he do that? Well, as Tim Keller powerfully says, Jesus didn't come to bring the vengeance of God. He came to bear the vengeance of God. He didn't just stand by us. He stood in for us. And that's the justice of Jesus. When the perfect judge casts a verdict but then pays the penalty. So what do we do in light of this? You may have found the second part of verse 8 a little bit perplexing when we read it. Let me me go back to it. So I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? You read that and perhaps like me, I'm, I'm not quite sure what that means. I'm not quite sure where that fits. Well, the message rewrites it slightly like this, and this might help us. It says, how much, of that kind, sorry, how much of that kind of persistent faith will the Son of Man find on the earth when he returns? So how much of the persistent faith of the widow will be evident when the Son of Man comes back at Jesus' return? Now, of course, when the Son of Man returns, prayer's not going to be necessary any longer. But prayer, if you like, is a temporary means by which we can commune with God 
and have relationship with him. But when he comes back, we ain't going to need it. But in the meantime, it means that the faith he finds on earth is going to be evidenced through the ardent prayers of his people. And like the widow, we can be in a situation where we're not fully accepting the permanency of our condition. Because she still hopes for satisfaction and she requests favourable judgement. She's not happy just to sit there and wallow in her condition. She's after, she yearns for this idea of justice against her adversary. In verse 7, it says this, And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? Crying out day and night. There's a real sense here that what he seeks is a restlessness and a longing, a hunger and a thirst. But of course, these things for us are they're really hard because they're countercultural. What does culture tell us today? Well, ease and comfort and convenience, that's what we're after. That's what will bring you happiness and fulfilment. It doesn't say that we should be restless and have an eternal longing to hunger and to thirst, to wrestle with these things. They're totally countercultural. But restlessness and longing give prayer meaning. Because this ease and this comfort that we're sort of sold, we know that ultimately it's not going to save us. Jared Kelly says this, In the deepest part of ourselves, we know that godly dissatisfaction has a role to play in our growth. There is a hunger inherent in the life of prayer, without which it has no power. Let me read that again. In the deepest part of ourselves, we know that godly dissatisfaction has a role to play in our growth. There is a hunger inherent in the life of prayer, without which it has no power. We see that dissatisfaction and that hunger in God's people right from the beginning. We see that in Abraham. We see that in Moses. We see that in all his faithful followers right the way through, all the way through to the apostles who aren't happy just to sit in comfort but have a real sense of satisfaction that more needs to be done, more needs to be seen, more needs to happen. God needs to be more evident and to have more opportunity to break through. So let's embrace this hunger. A bit later, Kelly says this, let the deepest longings of our hearts, our inner restlessness and passion, flow into rather than against our life with God. So let's embrace this. Let's bring these deepest longings of our hearts and our inner inner restlessness and passion and use that to fuel our relationship with God, not to keep us apart from his presence. When I read this parable and was thinking about this and studying it, it reminded me of a a verse, a really powerful verse, actually, back in Isaiah 62. And the context of this is that it's referring to God's promises for Zion. So this idea of the new Jerusalem, you know, the, the, the Zion that would come about at the end of time, this new Jerusalem for his people. And in Isaiah 62, verses 6 and 7, it says this, I have posted watchmen on your walls, Jerusalem. They will never be silent day or night. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest and give him no rest till he establishes Jerusalem and makes her the praise of the earth. You who call on the Lord, give yourselves no rest, and give him no rest, till he establishes Jerusalem, and makes her the praise of the earth. It's like God saying to his listeners, keep urging me, don't let me rest, don't leave me, don't stay silent, give me no rest, keep prodding, keep going. And just as you yourselves, you prepare for my arrival, you prepare for the arrival of the kingdom, Never cease, never give up. This idea that God is saying to us, make sure I stay alert, make sure that I bring these things about, 
It shows us that people of prayer are essentially the guardians. So our prayers need to be ceaseless. They need to be vocal. They need to be Godward. And they are, by his will, somehow, a vital ingredient in the implementing of his promises. What an amazing privilege that our prayers are the fuel for God's promises. There was a a trial done by some scientists because uh, we know that in, in clinical situations, few people actually, if they're given antibiotics as a treatment, few of them will actually have all of the 24 pills. What tends to happen is that they'll have a few and they start to feel better and they start to think, well, I don't need the rest, I'm better now, I'm okay. And then they will give up on their course of treatment. The trouble with that is that there's a risk of developing bacterial resistance. So it's, it's really important that people continue the course of antibiotics right to the end to make sure that all these complications don't happen and to make sure it's effective. And some scientists applied the practice of uh, the loading bar, you know, like the little progress bar you get on your computers. The, the science behind that, they applied it to an antibiotics trial. And so rather than giving people 24 white pills, they gave them 18 white and then 6 blue and these people were told, once you finish the white ones, move on to the blue ones. And of course, what happens? The number of people who complete the course of antibiotics rockets up because they have a sense of there's a milestone to reach. It's called chunking. There's something that I need to get to, which is a smaller step as part of a bigger whole. So we're much more likely to complete a bigger task if we've got some milestones along the way. And it got me thinking, what if in our prayer life we gave up after prayer number 18? What if we decided to give up, either because we'd not seen much change or maybe we'd seen a little bit of a response to our prayer and we thought that was probably enough, we wouldn't bother God anymore. How would we pray differently if we knew that our 24th prayer was the one that would bring about the breakthrough that we longed for? So let's hunger for more of God's justice, a redemptive beauty, breaking into the world, breaking into our community, breaking into our families and breaking into our lives. And let's remember the unjust judge and the widow and not forget the God that we serve and the God who brings about justice and the hope that we have as widows. I'll finish with the words of Leonard Ravenhill. He says this, The church has many organisers, but few agonisers. Many who pay, but few who pray. Many wrestlers, but few wrestlers. Many who are enterprising, but few who are interceding. The secret of praying is praying in secret. That is the difference between the modern church and the early church. In the matter of effective praying, never have so many left so much to so few. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we find when we do a little bit of digging, when we start scrabbling the jewels that surface. Father, help us to see ourselves as the widow, the one who has lost everything, but in you is given all that we need. Help us to see ourselves like the poor, those who have nothing to bring you, but in your mercy have everything to receive. 
Help us to see us like the alien, like the immigrant, the one who has no right to call heaven our home, but for whom a place has been prepared for us to dwell with you and you with us. And Lord, help us to see ourselves as the orphan, the one who has been separated from family, isolated, but has been welcomed back in, welcomed back in by the Father, who is no longer an orphan but a child. Help us to be courageous and persevering in our prayers. Help us to be restless. May we seek no rest day and night, Lord, and may we give you no rest until that breakthrough. And Lord, thank you that we have so much to look forward to, but let us not, in doing that, miss your presence in our midst. Let us not invite you into the places where we go, but to seek to find you already there at work. And I'm reminded of the words that say, Lord, when, when comfort comes knocking, they've left me. When comfort comes knocking, may courage answer the door. When comfort comes knocking, may courage answer the door. Lord, give us that courage. And may we be relentless in our prayers, Lord, until the day that prayers will no longer be necessary. In Jesus' name, Amen.